Hi, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, episode 141. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash theweekindoubt. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So it looks like I'm going to be milking my interview with uh, Anonymous Steve for everything it's worth. Last week, or was it the week before, I released that fun fact episode inspired by some of the sundry topics Steve and I discussed, and now I'm going to present you with an episode I call How to Insult an Atheist. Hope I didn't steal that title. I think another podcast might have recently released an episode with a similar title, but anyway... And before we get started, I'd like to apologize for being later than usual with uh, getting this week's episode out. I don't want to bore you with a long tale about one of my medical ailments. Um, I'm not even sure if this is what it is, but one of my doctors told me, well, she's actually an orthopedic surgeon, that I probably have something that's called uh, post-tibial tendonitis. But this has been going on for a few years, and about once or twice a year, if I overwork my foot um, doing manual labor or whatever, I'll get this kind of excruciating pain in the arch of my foot, then the whole foot will kind of blow up and swell, and I get this severe nerve pain, and I end up hobbling around on crutches for uh, a week or two. And that's basically what happened. I'm on the tail end of it now. So obviously it doesn't take uh, a lot of manual dexterity to record a podcast. But any any of you who've ever had like a bad sprain or something like that probably know that um, if it's your hand or your foot, sometimes the inflammation or the nerve pain can be so bad that it just kind of throws your whole game off. So I haven't been getting much done but enough of that, here I am, and uh, now on with the podcast. So you guys probably remember from my interview with Steve how we kind of made a list as we went along, or Steve kind of numbered these kind of stereotypical and insulting assumptions that believers sometimes espouse regarding atheists. So I think what I'm going to do is go through a short list of them, these so-called uh, ways to insult an atheist. The numbering that I'm arbitrarily giving them now might be a little different than the numbering that Steve and I gave them during the interview, but I'll give a little bit of an introduction to each fallacy, for lack of a better word, and then I'll play a combination of clips from my interview with Steve, as well as some clips from some atheist versus theist debates. So first up, I guess I'll call it number one, is this idea that deep down atheists really believe in God. I was just hunting around for uh, a clip of Kevin Sorbo from maybe about a year or so ago, around the time when he was promoting that movie, God's Not Dead, which I actually uh, gave a complete breakdown or review of on an older episode. I was looking for an old video clip of him saying this, that he believes the reason why atheists are, in his words, so quote-unquote angry is because deep down they know God really exists. Well, here's a clip of Steve and I discussing this fallacy, I guess we'll call it. Yeah, I mean, I went, I know I went through a number of, uh, to borrow religious terminology, uh, dark nights of the soul, uh, yes. existential episodes. And that's why sometimes I get, um, a little offended when sometimes you'll hear Christian, it's kind of a, a an old Christian apologist chestnut that, uh, Atheists really believe in God. They just don't want to admit it. But deep down, they believe. And it's I know, the most insulting. It's the yeah. most insulting thing that they can say to us, isn't it? It is because my unbelief was very hard won. Uh, there's a time in my life when nothing was more nightmarish than the prospect that there might not be a God or an afterlife. Okay, so that one didn't take long to cover. 
Uh, I was actually hunting around for an old John Lennox versus, uh, it might have been versus Christopher Hitchens debate where uh, Lennox makes a, a similar uh, accusation, or, or maybe it was uh, Lennox versus Dawkins, but I had trouble locating it. So anyway, on to the next fallacy. Okay, so next up, I guess we'll call it number two, insert Beavis and Butthead laugh, um, is this idea often espoused by Christian apologists that atheism is a religion like any other religion. So first up, I'll play a clip from a debate between Sam Harris and Rabbi David Walby. One of the reasons why I'm, it's not a trick, I, I'm not a fan of the term atheism. I mean, atheism is a, is a term totally without content. It's like being a non-astrologer. You know? I mean, we, we don't have a word for someone who's not an astrologer. We, and, we don't, and if astrologers suddenly became ascendant in our society, we wouldn't need to invent non-astrology as a discipline. We could talk about reason and science and evidence and common sense and bullshit mm -hmm. and put astrologers in their place. And I, mm -hmm. so it could be with religion. Um, and so this, this notion that uh, Stalin and Hitler and Pol Pot uh, were doing what they did because of atheism, because of non-belief in God. I mean, ask yourself, is, is too much skeptical inquiry really what's wrong with North Korea? I mean, the North Koreans are a cargo cult armed with nuclear weapons right now. They think that the food aid that we give them is a, is a devotional offering to the genius of their dear leader. They are systematically impoverished, both physically and in terms of information. They are, they, 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 too much knowledge, any knowledge is too much knowledge uh, in North Korea. This is not a, a, a paradise of reasonableness. Now, all I'm advocating is that we use the same standards of rationality that we use in every other area of our lives when people start making claims about the divine origin of certain books and the virgin birth of certain people and the glorious end to history where we're, the good people will be raptured into the sky, uh, these are the kinds of things that we should uh, apply pressure to. And it is taboo to ap apply pressure to these claims. And religious moderation, unfortunately, ramifies that taboo. Okay, so next up on the same topic, I'll play an exchange between Michael Shermer and John Lennox. Uh, made after the fact. Uh, let me clarify one thing. Atheist, non-theist, agnostic, bright, whatever. The labels are, are problematic because uh, it assumes that you already know what I'm talking about when I talk about this particular word. Uh, atheism is just a lack of belief in a God. It isn't a thing to be. It isn't a position to take. It's not like a political position where we have seven planks that we adhere to. It's just, I just don't believe in God. That's it. So in the Q&A, don't ask me, do you have faith in atheism or isn't atheism a religion? No, it isn't anything. It's just, it's not a, it's just a starting point. No, I don't believe. Now let's talk about what we do believe. Uh, and if you want, in the Q&A, we can go about other things that we do believe, human rights or civil liberties or whatever. But that's not religion. That's politics. But I just want you to notice the same argument applies to atheism. If you argue that religions are comfort and it helps and so on, that's nothing to do with its truth. You'd say exactly the same of atheism. So we've got to break out of that, and that's why both of us, as I understand it, are actually interested no. in evidence. No, that's why I said atheism isn't a thing to be. It, it, it's just a, it's nothing. It's just I don't believe. That's it. Do you believe that, do you? Let's, uh, Ladies and gentlemen. No calling out from the audience, thanks. Uh, <laughs> there are microphones for you to call out through, and uh, this would, gentleman has been waiting at this microphone. Am I allowed to ask Michael a question? Oh, we'll have this gentleman. Yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> no, I'm very puzzled, and I've heard it from Richard Dawkins too, and Christopher Hitchens, that atheism is a nothing. It's simply the belief in a negative that there isn't a God. And it's like not believing in Wotan, and I'm an Azusist and all the rest of it. Well, I certainly am an Azusist, ladies and gentlemen. And atheists say they only go one God further. Well, that's like saying that there's not much difference between marriage and celibacy, it's just one relationship less. Um, <laughs> that, that, uh, not the, for all marriages. That, <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't mean that as a substantive point. 
the, the thing is this. Richard Dawkins and Michael Shermer and Christopher Hitchens have not written 400, have not written 400 pages on awotanism. Because atheism, although he's perfectly right, it is belief not in God, has a whole set of positive entailments. And as far as I understand, Michael can correct me, his positive philosophy is either materialism or naturalism. That is why he is expounding it to us tonight. And to say atheism is a nothing is, well, I simply don't comprehend it. It is a belief system which includes a negative belief in God and a whole set of positive beliefs. Ask him if he believes atheism. Okay, quick, uh, so we can move on. No. Atheism, is it, is it belief or disbelief? It's just simply, I don't believe in God, that's it. I mean, when you talk about, yes, I believe there are natural forces at work, that's not, that has nothing to do with atheism. I also believe in liberal democracy and free markets. That has nothing to do with atheism either. This is just, you have to specify which particular claim you're making and why you believe it. We have a question up the back. Okay, now here's a clip of Steve and I discussing this matter. And it is funny because I often talk about on, on this show how I think, you know, it's funny because atheism really isn't a creed. Uh, another famous Christian apologist, Chestnut, is that um, atheism is a religion like any other religion, when in fact it's the absence of belief. And I was recently thinking to myself, you know, kind of comically resorting to humor instead of pulling my hair out when dealing with these kinds of desperation. Yeah. yeah, comments is that it's not like atheists ever came to my door like Jehovah Witnesses and saying, no. can we tell you about the bad news? Or, that, <laughs> you know, I felt that I needed a lack of meaning in my life. So I went down to the local uh, atheist hall of worship or non-worship or something. That's right. And, uh, and you get to you get two non things are not the same. A non-stamp collector could be a psychopathic killer. And if a non-stamp collector could be a, a nurse, the absence of something is it has absolutely nothing to say about anything other than that one thing that they share, an absence. It, that's true. And I think another thing I think about is that to believe in a religion, you really, it, with maybe some exceptions like, say, an adult convert or something like that, you really need indoctrination. Where with me, and I find this is the same with other uh, non-believers, is that I tried to believe, I was taught to believe, like I said, the idea of there not being a God or an afterlife was absolutely nightmare, truly nightmarish when I was young. But my reason um, worked like acid on my faith. Yeah. You know? oh, well, that's the weird thing. So over here, we don't, necessarily have, we don't have to go through that process. Mm -hmm. If I think about the really religious people in my life, at all in my life, I can think of one person that's cropped up, and it just happened to be someone someone who lived about six doors away from my house when I grew up. That's how I can't even remember his name. That's how that's how few people who are very very religious have occurred into my in, in my life. I just can't think of anyone else. I, I, there was a teacher at school. There was one teacher, and of course, everyone knew that he was religious because he was the odd one out being religious. And I can't remember his name either. I mean that. It, that's how unusual it is here to have to, or from, in my experience, to come across people with, you know, a deep faith. Okay, so now on to number three. Uh, this is one of the ones I personally find the most annoying. What if you're wrong? And this uh, excerpt is taken from a debate between Robert M. Price and William Lane Craig. And this is going to be uh, Robert M. Price that you hear next. What if you're wrong? And he's right. What then? Okay. I think I can actually cram these in. Uh, let's see. Uh, for one thing, uh, a few of them uh, real quick. All excellent questions. Uh, if, uh, if I am wrong, uh, what I think uh, somebody asked Clarence Darrow this. He was much interested in religion, uh, but an agnostic. And they said, "What if you, you know, the old Christian thing is right, and, and you you find you get to the pearly gates and find out?" He he's, he said, "Well, I'd say, gentlemen, I was mistaken." Uh, 
And, and, and you have to ask then, well, is God going to be a peevish theology professor? That's, that's too bad, you bastard. You're going to pry. Uh, if that is the reaction of God, I don't think that's a God worthy of worship. So I'm not too worried. I think if I seek the truth as well as I can uh, and uh, with as, as clean a conscience as I can, I, I'm not going to worry. I mean, I'm going to hell in somebody's dogma anyway, right? The Muslims, the Jehovah's Witnesses. I might as well call them as I see them. All right. Well said, Robert M. Price. And now here's a clip of Steve and I discussing this. Another thing that drives me nuts that you sometimes hear from Christians, and everyone thinks it's the big gotcha. And whenever you watch a debate between atheists and theists, and they allow questions from the audience, this invariably, uh, inevitably comes up. Someone in the audience will smugly ask, what if you're wrong? You know, oh, God. And, and and so uh, and this is why I absolutely detest on moral grounds Pascal's wager. Absolutely. Because Pascal's wager says, well, just we, we don't know for sure. But just in case God is real and hell is real, we and should all, all be stuff, Muslims. Yeah, we, <laughs> we we should all believe in whatever religion it is, you know, just in case um, kind of hedging our bets. And I think that is morally abhorrent. And yeah, if, God's going to be fooled by that as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's one thing. That's an, a good point, too. It's insulting to God if he, she, or it actually existed. But and uh, it's insulting to God on two counts. One, because you're saying you can fool them uh, in that way. And another, it's saying it's painting God as cosmic bully. What type of God is that that would send you to eternal perdition just because you didn't pay lip service or bow down out of fear. I would hope that any deity worth yeah. worshipping... I'm with Stephen Fry on this. This, this. this God that doesn't exist, if it did, and if it just so happened to be this one that the Christians keep going on about, mm -hmm. if it, Stephen Fry, Fry's got this right. How dare he do what he does? How dare he give childhood cancer and, and stuff like that? And, you know, I don't know if you know the expression in, in England. Uh, it might be American, actually. I wouldn't, buy, I wouldn't want to be a, any, a member of the club that would want that me would, in it. That, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to bet. I mean, also, isn't it horrible? I, I don't want to spend eternity bowing to God. Uh, that's, that's a, mm. That is hell. Right. Or it's just, I think it's so, what's really abhorrent about it is this weird idea that a being that would be enlightened and all-knowing, and yet they require you to constantly be praising and acknowledging sure. them. Sure. How insecure is that? Yeah, like that's some grand kind of uh, self-esteem complex or something. <laughs> okay, so next up, number four. And this is the idea or the accusation that atheists are, quote unquote, spiritual. And of course, spiritual has kind of supernatural or religious connotations. But I believe those experiences that people do label spiritual, those are experiences that we all have. The only difference is the atheists would tend to think that they're products of the brain. It's kind of biochemical experiences, whereas um, the believer will probably tend to think that they're truly transcendent or, or divinely inspired experiences. And there's plenty of clips out there of Christopher Hitchens talking about this, talking about the numinous or the transcendent. And when I say in transcendent, there's another loaded word. I don't mean transcending the mundane to the divine. I mean transcending one mode of consciousness to another. Um, on short notice, I couldn't dig up any good hitch clips on uh, that matter, so I'll just play you a clip of Steve and I discussing this. And, and, and that's funny. That brings up, like, I, I was, I think I was going to say before, but I, I forgot, even though I'm a non-believer, I have kind of a romantic, quote-unquote, spiritual side. Uh, 
and I'm a big oh, fan. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, that's, uh, yeah before you, before you say oh, that, okay. that's the that's the fifth. There's a fifth worst insult because you're an atheist. You have no soul. You have no feeling. You have no love. You know, you, you don't understand beauty because you're cold, calculating, evil, exactly. atheistic bastard. Well. No, <laughs> that's what fifth most. That's what we've now come with five really insulting things to say to an atheist, and that's 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 a big one for me. I really really pisses me off that one does. Me too, and I'm usually pretty polite, say on YouTube and things like that. And I remember the one time I really got kind of angry was, uh, and people for the most part have been polite to me, but I did one episode where I thought I rather fairly gave a breakdown of my thoughts on the story of Eben Alexander, the uh, Harvard neurosurgeon who claimed to have had a near-death experience. Oh, got him. And I thought it was a fairly reasonable and respectful breakdown of it. And I said at the end of the day that we can't take one person's anecdotal experience as concrete proof of an afterlife. But I got... uh, inundated with criticism from everything from you know religious fundamentalists to new agey crystal toting sort of people and uh some of the accusations were that i don't get spirituality or this and that and i went on to explain how you know since i've since i was a young teenager i've been writing music poetry uh song lyrics, that I'm someone who every day is moved by nature, someone who's easily moved by uh, art, as Hitchens used to say, art and landscape. I think unless there's something really off about your wiring, all of us have access to this range of experience that people call transcendent or spiritual. The only difference is I would say that those experiences, as rich and valid as they are, are products of the brain. And I'm a person sure. who leans towards that consciousness is an emergent property of the Absolutely. brain. Well, there's no other explanation. I mean, I'm quite happy to hear an alternative explanation. <laughs> I listen to it, but just, I just just give me one that isn't just fluffiness. Just you know, and I think the the whole idea of of evolution and 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 how the brain works or whatever. I think it's beautiful in itself. I don't. I don't need to have fluffiness added to it to make it any more pretty. You know, I think of evolution. It's more fantastic and more amazing than God did it. It is really, and I think if you look at it like an epic saga, you know, if you think about rudimentary life struggling and slowly evolving and becoming more and more complex, all these myriad creatures falling and rising. It really is this kind of beautiful, epic journey. And in comparison, you know, a kind of sky daddy <laughs> going poof and bringing everything into existence, it's almost vulgar or childish sure. in comparison. Sure. It, it's mundane. It's inane. It, 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 it's got it's depthless, especially if you make it 6,000 years. It's a very short, stupid story. Okay, so as I said, uh, the numbering's a little off. I think Steve was referring to that one as number five. But according to the list that I've compiled for this episode, uh, this last one is number five. And I should say last but not least, uh, and this is the idea that without God, there can be no objective morality. And maybe that's so objective morality, if, if we define that as this almost etched in stone code of right and wrong, uh, Christian apologists would probably consider it this moral sense etched in the hearts of men by God. So without a God, we can't have objective morality. Uh, maybe that's true, maybe that isn't, but they'll usually go even further and say, if you take God out of the equation, we don't even have a right to say what's wrong and what isn't. That we're in this complete kind of amoral wasteland. But anyway, uh, I'll play some clips from various uh, theist versus atheist debates where this very topic is addressed. And first up is a clip of Arif Ahmed. 
Um, some of you may not have heard of him. I think he's, uh, guessing by his name, probably originally of uh, Muslim descent, uh, but a British citizen and a brilliant uh, atheist debater. And I really like him. I just found out about him recently. So this is Arif Ahmed going uh, head-to-head with uh, William Lane Craig. Number three, objective moral values are plausibly grounded in God. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. By objective moral values, I mean values which are valid and binding whether anybody believes in them or not. Many theists and atheists agree that if God does not exist, then moral values are not objective. For example, Michael Roos, a noted philosopher of science, explains, the problem or the position of the modern evolutionist is that morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great 19th century atheist who proclaimed the death of God, understood that the death of God meant the destruction of all meaning and value in life. I think that Friedrich Nietzsche was right. But we've got to be very careful here. The question here is not, must we believe in God in order to live moral lives? I'm not claiming that we must. Nor is the question, can we recognize objective moral values without believing in God? I think that we can. Rather, the question is, if God does not exist, do objective moral values exist? And like Professor Roos, I just don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, the morality evolved by Homo sapiens is objective. On the atheistic view, some actions, say rape, may not be socially advantageous, and so in the course of human development has become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really wrong. On the atheistic view, there's nothing really wrong with your raping someone. Thus, God does not exist. Objective moral values do not exist. But the problem is that objective values do exist, and deep down, I think we all know it. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. Actions like rape, cruelty, and child abuse aren't just uh, socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Some things, at least, are really wrong. Michael Roos himself admits the man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says 2 plus 2 equals 5. Similarly, Love, equality, and self-sacrifice are really good. Hence, I think we all know, too, objective values do exist. But then it follows logically and inescapably that three, therefore, God exists. Dr. Craig tells us that we need God if there are to be moral, objective moral values. Now, there's two things I want to say about that very briefly. The first thing is that if there are any objective moral values, I know that murdering innocent people is wrong. I know that laying siege to a town and slaughtering all its inhabitants is wrong. That's why I think Srebrenica was wrong. If moral objective values come from the God that Dr. Craig believes in, then that's right. Just look in the book of Joshua. What does he say? Kill everybody except the whore who lives in that town and protected by messengers. So it looks like if we do think moral obje- objective moral values come from God it looks like we should say Srebrenica was all right. In any case, what reason is there for thinking there are objective moral values? There must be a good argument for this. After all, there are no objective aesthetic values, quite plausibly, so Dr. Craig must give us an argument for saying there are objective moral ones. What is the argument? Well, it was striking, so I wrote it down. He said, 
there are objective moral values because deep down we know there are. That's it. That's the argument. Now that may pass for an argument in Talbot Theological College. It may indeed pass for an argument in the White House. But, <laughs> but this, is, this is Cambridge and it doesn't pass for an argument here. Finally, I want to point out that evil itself actually proves that God exists. It, the argument would go like this. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. He admitted that point in his first speech. Secondly, evil exists. He admitted that in his first speech. It follows from that that objective moral values exist. That is, some things are really evil. Therefore, it follows that God exists. So far from actually disproving God's existence, evil actually ultimately proves that God exists because in the absence of God, evil as such would not exist. Finally, he suggests that belief in God leads to perverted moral values. Now, the irony about this is that he can't make that judgment but he, because he doesn't believe objective moral values exist. He cannot condemn these things or say that they are sick or perverse because on an atheistic view, there are no objective moral values. Whatever uh, anyone decides to do, uh, whether it's uh, in a society or culture of Islam or Christianity or whatever, all things are permitted. So uh, I don't think he can even make these sorts of moral judgments on the basis of his atheistic philosophy. In any case, human perversity uh, uh, in misusing religion in no way proves that God doesn't exist. It would just prove that human beings perversely use uh, religion for their own evil purposes. It's not at all a disproof of God's existence. So I think these arguments for atheism are, are far from compelling. The second point, and this comes to the argument from evil, as I put it, um, Dr. Craig raised the objection, um, and this strikes me as slightly strange, but Dr. Craig did raise the objection that we can never actually know whether the harm that happened was good or evil. We can never actually know whether what happened in the First World War, for example, was at the end of the day the best thing. Now just think for a minute what this means. As I said, this is not an academic parlour game. It's very easy, especially for academics, who unless they try have very little exposure to the real world, it's very easy to lose sight of the distinction between opening your mouth and saying something as part of a game and actually meaning it. What Dr. Craig is telling us is that the Holocaust, for example, is something of which we can't say whether it was for the best. For all we know, we should suspend judgment as to whether the Nazi Holocaust was at the end of the day for the best. Now I hope you want to think about that before you start saying something like that. I move on now to the second the argument I gave concerning uh, the idea that religious belief would warp our moral values. And here Dr. Craig believes he's caught me in a bind because he says that, well, I said I don't believe in objective moral values, so how can I say, for example, that sending Iranian children across a minefield is objectively wrong? I needn't say anything of the sort. As far as this argument goes, all I need to say is the following. Even if I didn't believe in objective moral values, what I do know is this. If there are objective moral values, they aren't ones that are going to make something like that right. So if God exists, those things are objectively right. Therefore, God doesn't exist. Anyone else creeped out by William Lane Craig saying that without God, we wouldn't know that rape was wrong. Uh, <clears throat> kind of disturbing. But anyway, next up, here's some uh, Christopher Hitchens clips uh, addressing this uh, same issue. I'm glad to receive them, but I have some here. Now, the first question, obviously, is for you, Christopher. Uh, since Mr. McGrath has just finished, I would put the question to you, which is, if, if God does not exist, on what basis can anyone say this action is right or this action is wrong? So whoever asked that only just came into the room, right? I can't believe that I didn't say what I thought about it. But, but I won't repeat it, because actually what Dr. McGrath just said I thought was unusually good on this point. You'll recall what he said on the Dostoevsky matter. Um, if God exists, we have to do what he says. If he doesn't, we can do what we like. Now, just apply this for a second in practice and in theory. Um, is it not said of God's chosen people, 
And is it not said to, uh, to them by God in the Pentateuch that they can do exactly as they like to other people? They can enslave them. They can take their land. They can take their women. They can destroy all their young men. They can help themselves to all their virgins. They can do what anyone who had no sense of anything but their, their own rights would be able to do, but in this case with divine permission. Doesn't that make it somewhat more evil? In Iran, where I've been, I've been to all three axes of evil countries, uh, by the way, and th I think I'm the only writer who can say that. You're not allowed to sentence a woman who is a virgin to death, even though she may have committed, in the eyes of the mullahs, a capital crime, perhaps by showing her hair too often or her limbs. She can't be sentenced to death. But religious law means she can be raped by the revolutionary guards and she's not a virgin anymore. And then they can kill her. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law used to be considered the motto of Satanism, as I recall. Divine permission given to people who think they have God on their side enables actions that a normal, morally normal unbeliever would not contemplate the mutilation of genitalia of children. Who would do that? if it wasn't decided that God wanted it. Just as when the poet in England gets the poet laureateship, they start to write drivel instead of poetry for some reason. It's the, it's the king's scrofula the other way around. Morally normal and intelligent people find themselves saying fatuously wicked things when this subject comes up. The suicide bombing community is entirely faith-based. The genital mutilation community is entirely faith-based. Slavery is mandated by the Bible. People keep, you keep hearing how many abolitionists were Christians. Well, it was about time that they took a stand against it, having mandated it for so long. So it's, 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 it's not even a tautology, I think, to say that there's, a, that, uh, there's a, a relationship between the human impulse to do evil, to be selfish, to be self-centered, to be greedy, and a contrast between that and faith, because Given only faith, mountains can be moved and millions of people who would never normally acquiesce in evil are brought to it straight away and with ease and with self-righteousness. There, that's my answer to that. And, and the questioner did not answer my challenge. Name an ethical statement made or action performed by a believer in the name of faith that couldn't have been by an, an infidel and name, if you can, this is easier, a wicked action that could only be mandated by faith, and then you'll see how silly your question was, wherever you were. If there is no God, you can't say that decapitating a man on a bus is objectively morally wrong. That's just your opinion. As Dostoevsky said, if there is no God, everything is permitted. Now, I want to be very clear here. I'm not saying that atheists can't know morality, they do. I'm not saying that atheists can't be moral, they can. I'm not saying that believing in God makes you more moral, as Christopher has pointed out, and as I say, I agree with much of what he writes here. I'm not saying that religious people are necessarily better than atheists. That's not the argument. The argument is, is that there's no way to say that a given act is moral or immoral unless there's a standard beyond humanity. It's not just my opinion, it's not just Christopher's opinion, or Mother Teresa's or Hitler's. There's a standard beyond everybody that defines what is right. That standard is God's very nature. Since objective moral laws exist, there must be an objective moral lawgiver. You say, no, there doesn't need to be any moral lawgiver. If there's a prescription, there must be a prescriber. If you go to the pharmacist and say... Here, I'd like you to fill this prescription. And the pharmacist says, who prescribed it? And you go, nobody. Are you going to get your prescription? No. Now, there's a, again, there's a lot more on the moral argument. Maybe we can talk about it a little bit during the Q&A. But, but how does rationality and mathematics arise from randomness? How do they come from matter? Rationality and mathematics are the product of mind, not matter. So you've got reason and the laws of logic, the laws of mathematics, and then Number seven, or seven in my list here, three in the edition, human freedom and the ability to make choices. Christopher is somebody who is very concerned about human freedom, freedom as I am. But again, if we are just molecules in motion, how do we have human freedom? William Provine from Cornell, he's a materialist, a Darwinist. He points out that we don't have any human freedom if all we are is 
molecules in motion. Now, Christopher ought not scold anybody for being a snake-handling, Bible-thumping, funny mentalist preacher, because according to his own worldview, that person is that way because these are just chemicals going on in his brain. Neither could you say that Hitler had done anything wrong if it's just chemicals going on in his brain. I mean, what is the murder molecule? How much does justice weigh? These are questions that have no answer in a materialistic worldview, but that is Christopher's worldview. It seems to me that it makes much more sense to say that reason and laws of logic, mathematics and human freedom come from a great mind that granted us these immaterial realities. The just to me that I would be um, ignoble if I didn't uh, respond to. Um, the first, and I thought the most, frankly, the most egregious was this. I find it extraordinary that it can be said on a university campus in this year of grace that, uh, that without God, humans are capable of doing anything. That there is no moral restraint upon us if we don't concur in the idea that we are the property and uh, creation of a supreme being. Uh, I'm making the assumption that all of you check in every now and then with some kind of news outlet and have a view of what's going on in the rest of the world. Isn't it as plain as could be that those who commit the most callous, the most cruel, the most brutal, the most indiscriminate atrocities of all, do so precisely because they believe they have divine permission? Shall I answer my own question? Shall I insult you by adding more? Who can't think of an example of this kind? Let me put the question in another form that I've put in now... Uh, Every forum from YouTube to C-SPAN to the wireless to the print to the radio to the television and innumerable forums to those who say that without God there can be no morality. You are to ask yourself two questions. You are to name a moral action undertaken or a moral and ethical statement made by a believer. I dare say you can do it. You are then to say that you can... Not imagine a non-believer making this moral statement or undertaking this moral action. Can you think, can you now think, can any of you think, you have, don't have to answer now, you have all night, and, and you have my email. <laughs> and I've done this with everyone from the Archbishop of Canterbury to even lower people. Um, <laughs> you name me the ethical and moral actional statement that a believer can make and an unbeliever cannot, and there's a prize. I'll tell you that, about that later. Now there's a second question. Think of something wicked that only a believer would be likely to do. Or something wicked that only a believer would be likely to say. You've already thought of it. The suicide bombing community is entirely religious. The genital mutilation community is entirely religious. I wouldn't say that the child abuse community is entirely religious. I wouldn't. But it's bidding to be entirely religious. It operates on the old Latin slogan, no child's behind left. <laughs> how dare anybody, how dare anyone who speaks for religion uh, say of us, the secular and the non-believers, that we are the immoral ones. It is itself a wicked thing to say. Itself an absolutely indefensible thing to say. No, the decapitation on the bus is going to be done by someone who thinks God is telling him to do it. Smerdyakov is actually the stupidest character in Dostoevsky's novel. Uh, he's the one who makes this proposition. Everyone has to understand, everyone has to understand that it is those who feel that the divine is prompting them, who feel they're permitted anything and everything. And it is those who are the leading, most salient, most violent, most vicious opponents of the values and civilization that Thomas Jefferson uh, stood for and promulgated. I'm very keen to know how it is that you, in a sense that you dare to say that without a belief in religion, I would have no source for ethical or moral... It's not what I'm belief. saying. You seem to hint at it. No. Did he not? No. Oh, I'm not saying you don't know morality, Christopher. I'm saying you can't justify morality without a being beyond yourself. So that, just if I... Okay, good. Um, so that if I say that for me it's enough to be willing to love my fellow man and perhaps hope that my fellow man and woman will 
give me some of the same consideration in return. And that, um, after all, uh, the, the Samaritan, of whom we've all heard, uh, was the only one to help after the priests and the Levites had passed by. And the Samaritan also, though he's talked of by Jesus, can't have been a Christian because he appears in a story told by Jesus, so there can't be any Christianity before that. Somehow, he knew the moral thing to do is to help his fellow person without a religious instruction. Yes, that's... And that's actually the whole point of the parable, though it's not the way it's usually told. And that's what Christianity teaches. You know morality. It's written on your heart. You don't need the scripture to know right from wrong. And this was only available to us 2,000 years ago. No, no. You've known it from the beginning of time. Conscience has been on humanity from ev- forever. You'll have That's to let me point. press you a little bit on that. I mean, William Ewart Gladstone spent a huge amount of his life, and he was a great scholar of Latin and Greek, showing that every one of the Greek uh, Socratic and other moral precepts, all they were were just prefigurations of Christianity. These are the best the Greeks could do before Jesus arrived. But, no, 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 no. Because you couldn't that. face the idea that these solidarities and moralities and understandings are innate in people and don't require divine permission. I just have to ask you, if you could do it plainly, which side do you come down on? Do you think we need divine permission to act humanly to each other? No, it has nothing to do with permission. It has to do with the ontological category known as morality. Where does morality come from? Does it come from the benzene molecule, the carbon molecule, the oxygen molecule? In your worldview, where does it come from? Suppose that we were having this discussion before the existence of molecules was understood. It's irrelevant. No, it's not. Because the, the discussion about where does the good come from was being conducted before Lucretius uh, developed the atomic theory, uh, before um, Democritus and Epicurus. I should better say, understood that the whole world was made up of atoms and molecules. Before that was known, people were arguing, why do we behave one way uh, to our fellows, and we call it good, and, and another way, and we call it wicked? Because it's written the molecular, on... The, you can't, I don't think you can build in a molecular distraction. To that, that's, that's, it's, I'm not, I don't have the molecular problem, you do. So you're a materialist. I'm trying to ask you, where does morality come from in a materialistic worldview? Well, did I not just acquit myself of that charge and say that the argument precedes the knowledge of the atomic and molecular structure? No, it doesn't. No. Not that I think, by the way, that the atomic and molecular structure is irrelevant. And it could be that we might find out that there are, who knows, pheromones or, this, or, or other phenomena that do have an influence on our moral conditioning. Uh, this still wouldn't to a morally normal person relieve them of the responsibility of saying that I, I feel I know what's right I feel that some things my children don't need to be told they already know uh, let, me, let, me, let me interject here and just ask a question another way Do you whereas to tell a child you go to this church which means you'll go to heaven but your little playmates don't go to that church and therefore will go to hell seems to me to be an unpleasant thing to be saying Yes, that is. Maybe I'm in a minority. That could be an unpleasant thing, but how do you develop... Actually, an evil thing, you say. Let's call it evil, Christopher. Only a religious person would dream of saying. Let's call it evil. Where does evil come from? Religion. And and to to answer your next question, morality comes from humanism and is stolen by religion. For its own purposes. Humanism according to who? Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, who? You're saying that Hitler was a humanist? Just Hitchens. I've lived to hear it said. Hitchens. In Virginia. Hitler was a Catholic. A human. So a Hitler human. Hitler was a Catholic. A so human. Hitler was a Catholic. Give, so was Mussolini. Give me a... How... How does morality exist? Both of them it's had just a, my opinion against them, your opinion. Both of them had an official political no concord out with the Protestant and Catholic churches. Both of them wanted the worship of themselves as well as of uh, God. So I suppose no evil comes and from their third, And their third main ally, uh, Hirohito, the Emperor of Japan, not content just to be theocratic, was himself a god. So anyone who says that fascism and Nazism were secular is an ignoramus. Why is it on wrong? On a gigantic scale. Right. I'm, I'm asking it ontologically. Question. I'm, I'm not, not going to be called a, a Hitlerite because I'm a humanist. Okay? I'm not asking a sociological question. All right. 
Let me ask a question another way. This is my last question. Um, if God does not exist, why do all people have a fixed moral obligation to love and not murder? How do molecules in motion have any authority to tell you how to behave? When you do something wrong, whose standard are you breaking? Who are you displeasing? The carbon atom, the benzene molecule, who? This question has been asked, uh, Socrates answered it like this, when he was on trial for his life. Uh, Accused of blasphemy, by the way. Um, He said that he had an inner daemon, the way he put it. Not demon, a daemon, a spirit, uh, an inner critic, a conscience would be one way of putting it. And that he, he knew enough to know, even when he was making the best speech of his life, that if he was making a point that was somehow dishonest or uh, incomplete or shady, the daemon would tell him, yeah, that was clever, but you shouldn't have tried it. He knew. Any any person of average moral equipment has the same knowledge. I I hope you'll... If you don't, I'm very sorry for you. Um, Adam Smith called it the, the internal witness, who we all have to have a conversation with all the time. Um... It's been C.S. Lewis decided to call it conscience and to attribute it to the, to the divine, but he didn't improve on what Adam Smith said in the theory of moral sentiments or what Socrates said when, on, when standing trial for his, own, for his own life. It's been sometimes colloquially defined as why do people behave well when nobody's looking? I don't believe there's anyone in this hall who doesn't know what I mean by that. Why when it won't do you any good? Will you decide, I could have kept that wallet I found on the back of the cab seat, but I'm not going to. I'm going to turn it in. I'm going to see if, find, find its real possessor. There are people to whom that, those thoughts do not occur, who are deaf to that idea, who only think of themselves, who wouldn't worry about the internal daemon or censor or, uh, or companion. And there are, of course, people who only get pleasure from being um, unpleasant to other people are inflicting cruelty on them. The first group we call the sociopathic, and the second group we call the psychopathic. My only, and they occur in nature and in society. My only problem is with those who think that they're all made in the image of God. The one explanation that absolutely doesn't work at all, that gets you nowhere, that explains nothing. Christopher, it's your turn to ask. Oh, really? Yes, sir. Well, my question is this. Would anyone in the audience like to join this conversation? We actually have... Uh... We have questions if you're ready to move along. Yeah, I, I am. There one, and I'll throw a little Christian theology in here. The problem is, isn't that we don't have all the whole, or that we don't have all the Holy Spirit. We do. We just don't allow all the Holy Spirit to do what it should do. It's our problem. We are fallen human beings, and that's why Christ had to come because we are fallen human beings. And has to come again because he didn't get it right the first time. <laughs> I agree. Um, I agree with you that the grammar of the question is wrong. Um, but for a different reason. I don't see what's moral about Christian preaching. Uh, for example, apart from the horrible idea of vicarious redemption, I'm, I'll say again, in case I missed you the first time, what I mean by that, I could pay your debt, even if I didn't know you. If I was a friend, I could say, you're in debt, I'll pay. In extreme cases, people have been known to say, I'll serve your sentence in prison. I could do that for you. What I cannot do is relieve you of your responsibility. I can't say, throw your sins on me, they'll melt away. Immoral. People are not allowed to be. You're not entitled to be relieved of their responsibilities. And the vicarious redemption by human sacrifice is a very primitive and horrible scapegoating idea that belongs to the barbaric period of human history. So all pardons are immoral? No, not all pardons. I didn't say that. I said vicarious redemption is an immoral doctrine. It's also immoral of the Nazarene to say, take no thought for the morrow, not to clothe, not to eat, not to invest. Leave your family, leave your children, leave everything. Give up the world. No investment, no thrift, no thought for the future. Just follow me. That's only moral if, if you are a sure believer in the idea that the world is about to come to an end, which was the case with this apocalyptic... I guess you never read the parable of the talents. He said said the, the, uh, the prophecy is that the world is coming to an end real soon, there's no point in caring about anything else. That's not a moral preaching to me at all. Um, there are many other ways in which I, I, I fail to see how any, any bad behavior can ever be described as unchristian. And of course, it's completely laughable to say Christians build hospitals. They, as many Christians have bombed hospitals as, as have built them, and as many Muslims have built hospitals as Christians have. And as many uh, Babylonians 
have built great buildings as Christians have. If that's the best you can do, that's the best you can do. One of the uh, questioners repeats a, a point. Dr. Turek, um, a member of the audience, uh, takes issue with your claim that uh, objective morality necessarily relies in an absolute deity. Asking instead, uh, what about empathy, for which there are significant apparent biological bases? Sorry, I, sorry, I didn't hear that. What, what about a, what? Empathy, for which there are fairly well-established biological bases. A very human emotion cannot empathy lead to morality. Is it right to be empathetic? That's the question. I'm not saying there's no chemical connection um, between morality and, uh, or for morality, I should say. I'm, it, there, certainly when we think, there, there are chemicals going on. The question is, what is the standard that makes empathy or love right? What is the comp- chemical composition of love? What is the, what, how much does justice weigh? Well, these are all things that make no sense in a materialistic world. Well, but, that, but that's not entirely true. Let's say, for example, that um, neuro, cognitive neuroscientists are able to determine with scientific levels of precision that, in fact, certain neurochemical and cognitive events always, essentially always co-occur with the experience of empathy. But that wouldn't mean that empathy is right. See, there, there, there may be chemical compositions that cause that guy to chop that guy's head off, on the Canadian bus. That wouldn't make it right. The question is, what makes something right? In a materialist worldview, there's nothing that can make something right or wrong. As David Hume has said, you cannot get an art from an is. Well, I'm happy to agree with that. I, mean, I, I, think, I think that's true. Uh, but um, but I, I have to add only that uh, there are, we've all, some of us have been lucky enough to see it or meet people who done it, um, and all of us have read about it. There are people who will, when, they, when a grenade is lobbed through the window, throw themselves on it before it can blow up. It does happen. Um, there are people who, who die under torture without um, giving away the whereabouts of their comrades. Uh, there are people who go do bomb disposal work and sit defusing huge device. They know any minute does happen. It's always happened. It's common to every known human society. It's, it's a part of every heroic narrative of every known society there's ever been. Those who do it are honored. They are sung, as we say, uh, in the times when there was uh, no, literate, uh, no literal record. Um, and it doesn't require divine sanction or permission. It is, we're proud to say, if not innate in us, we'd, we'd be too humble to say that. It's innate in our species. It's something we can all aspire to. Yes, you but know we do not we do not get it from Big Brother. If we did, that would degrade it. It would mean it wasn't heroic. It wasn't brave. It wasn't individual. It wasn't exemplary. Why are these things good? It didn't deserve good? anything. What are... it would, because it would be in the hope either of a reward from Big Brother or for fear of punishment from it. It would abolish morality. Why... It destroys ethics. It means, it, means the, it, means the, it means the individual example is dust. Christopher, you've already abolished morality by your materialistic worldview. There's no such thing as morality if you're just a bunch of chemicals. Uh, wait a second. I... It's okay. I already know some people will clap anything. Um... <laughs> Are you, are you, do you mean to say? Do you mean to say that the human, uh, the, the, the body of a mammal, a primate, is not a chemical composition? No, it is. Oh, good. I'm questioning where why do you, you. Why do you? Why do you? Why do you act as if this has only just been discovered, and as if it's a, a theological point? Because you apparently have discovered that, in spite that morality. Of the, no, I, I would rather say, in spite of the fact that I am a, a primate, uh, or, or not, uh, notwithstanding, perhaps I'd better say that I am a primate. Nonetheless, I'm capable of thinking about heroism, self-sacrifice, example, and so forth. Why are all those things good? Don't turn to me and say, how can you say that and be a primate? I'm a primate. I can't alter the fact that I'm a primate. I can conceal it better than some people can. That's the best I can do. You're a primate as well, and you'll have to agree with both of us that it shows. Okay. All right. That was a long clip.
<laughs> Did you forget I was hosting? Now I'll play a clip of Steve and I discussing this. And something I meant to, uh, I made a note of it that I meant to talk to you about, uh, you know, having some experience with it myself was, I think, you know, there's this bizarre idea among religious people that you hear a lot that religion is necessary for moral instruction, you know. Or, Number six. Yeah, or even, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Number six most offensive thing is that religion gives you morals, and lack of religion can't give you morals. Honestly, yeah, and you despair, don't you? Yeah, we we probably even know people like, like peers who are kind of lukewarm when it comes to religion and don't even really practice themselves, but they indoctrinate the children into it just because they think they're doing right by the kids because the kids need some moral instruction. And I'm thinking, you know, I have two arguments against this. One is you can probably guess, as kind of a scientifically-minded uh, non-believer, I believe that morality is at least partly evolutionary. Well, I think we're a mixed Absolutely. bag. I think we're wire, wired to be tribal and violent, and we're also wired for empathy and compassion. We're social yeah, intern internal, Internally caring and externally aggressive. I think that's absolutely uh -huh. right. Yeah, absolutely. And and then um, another problem I have with it is uh, there might be some validity to the idea that you can learn some uh, you can you can gain some moral reinforcement from religion. But ironically, for me, born and raised Catholic, uh, forced to undergo Catholic education until probably my mid going into late teens. Um, I really didn't get any of my morality from Catholicism. The only religion I got any morality from was when I was kind of in a seeker phase, when I was closing the book on the idea of a, of a personal God, I studied Eastern religion for a while, and I became influenced by the idea of compassion and reverence for all life that's found in Eastern religions like Buddhism. Mm. And I still carry that with me. But all I can remember of my Catholic upbringing is the indoctrination, the superstition, sure. and the dogma. When sure. I did something bad as a kid, I felt bad probably out of some innate moral sense and also because I was afraid w what my parents would think. Sure. You know? <laughs> you got, well, look, look, the, the, the offences of the, of the father are carried to the son. Uh, the tribe that is in the land you want to go into can be massacred and the babies cut out of their wombs. Right. People who are religious, Christians, for example, can be, can be moral, but they're moral despite their religion, not because of it. I think it was it uh, Christopher Hitchens used to say, we don't get our morality from religion. Religion gets its morality from us, which I think is brilliant. Yeah, you know? and I'll add the word sometimes. Sometimes, that's right. <laughs> well, it probably gets its bad bits from us too, and anything good it's getting from us as well. But isn't that, I mean, the... the I mean, I, I look at Christianity a lot because it's the, it's the religion that most affects me. It's mostly around me. And I guess that's why I turn to it. But the whole premise of Christianity, the one that people want to try and... It's the dirty little secret of Christianity, in, in this country anyway, is the crimes of the father visited upon the son. That's mm -hmm. ultimately what Christianity relies upon. That's the whole, that whole thing about the broken society. The reason why children can die of cancer is that the, one you, the argument you gave me earlier because we're in, a, we're in a fallen society, right, right. rests upon the principle that the innocent child suffers because of the crimes of the father. Just as Jesus got crucified for all of our sins, bollocks. That's the really bizarre thing, and I'm far from the first person to point this out, but there are some Christians who are sensible enough to think that a lot of the Old, the Old Testament miracles are simply parables or fables but they still believe in the resurrection but it seems to me that yeah, in, in well, I, most strains of christianity the yeah. point of the re of the resurrection or the point of the death and resurrection is to redeem the world from the fall in the garden Absolutely. so if you don't believe that the fall in the garden was actually happened what was the death and resurrection all about well, this yeah. is this is what I find hard to, to understand about, if you like, Church of England type wishy-washy Christians, is that I can see the attraction 
of the idea that there was a good guy that knocked around 2000 years ago and had a bit of a hard time. <laughs> I can, I can, I can see the attraction of this, this guy who, who talked of love and turning the other cheek and we'll try and forget about the, I'll bring a, you know, Sell your, <laughs> sell your sell your clothes and give and bring a sword and that sort of yeah. even if we clean him up, totally clean him up, which they do anyway, and they clean out all the stuff we don't like, all the bits that that are are, 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 are look Samaritans are such disgusting people that I'll point this one out because he wasn't. Yeah, that's um, true. The good Samaritan. <laughs> you know, even if we really really tidy up Christianity and make it really nice and moral, you know, you have to say, well, what's the point? Because the whole point of it is redemption, redemption through sacrifice. Re- sacrifice not of the person who committed the crime. The vicarious redemption, as uh, Higgins yeah. used to call it. Absolutely. I mean, it's an, it's, it, it, you can't get much closer to an evil philosophy than that, can you? It's very, yeah, so you don't have to take account for your own wrongdoings. The, this one guy is going to redeem your sins. For you, he's basically a- acting as a stand-in for an Old Testament scapegoat. Where, where the, absolutely, yeah. You know, but then we're still dirty, fallen, and sinful. Yeah. Despite all that, so something didn't stick. Absolutely, you can't get much more more guilty than the Catholic, do you? That's absolutely. I'm, even though I'm a non-believer, I'm, as I alluded to earlier, I'm still carrying some of that baggage around. I'm from London. Uh, I spent most of my life in the north of England. And you'd say you can't get the Cockney out of the Londoner. We can't get the. You'd find it's hard to get the guilt out of the Catholic, to be honest, isn't it? Abso- oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's still something uh, I, I wrestle with to uh, some degree. It's fine. I remember th- there probably was a time when I was a teenager that I resented God for not existing, as paradoxical as that sounds. And now, I, I, even though I don't literally believe in any of the supernatural claims of Catholicism, I'm still carrying around some Catholic guilt. The the whole thing is very bizarre, but obviously from a psychological standpoint, it makes perfect sense if you indoctrinate a child at a young age. Okay, so I think that completes the list. And you guys know the whole drill. You can like the show on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter, check out the YouTube channel, Uh, You can rate the show on iTunes, also subscribe through iTunes. You can check out the archives at Podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com. Just go to Podbean and look for The Week in Doubt. I think my uh, Podbean handle might uh, also be Palbertelli, P-A-L-B-E-R-T-E-L-L-I. Well, if you manage to find the official Week in Doubt Podbean page. Uh, you can help out the show if you'd like to by donating as little as 99 cents via the PayPal widget at the bottom of the page. And that would, of course, be greatly appreciated. Uh, with that being said, uh, thank you once again for listening, and until next week. <laughs>